We'll hear argument now, number 01679, Gonzaga University and Rob, Roberta S. League versus John Doe. Mr. Roberts. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In 1974, when it enacted the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, Congress conditioned federal funding for educational institutions on the institution not having a policy or practice of releasing student records without consent. Congress did not phrase this condition in terms of individual rights. It did not, for example, follow the model of Title IX, enacted two years earlier and also dealing with educational institutions, and say something like, no student at a school receiving federal funds shall have his records released without his consent. Instead, Congress proceeded more indirectly. It said that no funds shall be made available to any institution having a policy or practice of releasing student records without consent. The statute is directed to the Secretary of Education. He's the one who makes federal funds available, not to the institution receiving the funds and certainly not to the individual student. This Court's cases establish that that is a distinction that makes a difference. In Canon, for example, the Court said there would be far less reason — Isn't it primarily a distinction that makes a difference in connection with whether there's an implied cause of action? rather than whether 1983 authorized the cause of action. In the implied right of action question, there are two questions. Did Congress intend to create a right, and did Congress intend to provide a judicial remedy? In the 1983 context, there are two questions. Did Congress intend to create a right, and did Congress intend to preclude resort to the 1983 remedy? So that first question, I think, is the same under both categories of cases. And as the Court said in Canon, if Congress phrases the statute as, quote, quote, as a prohibition on the disbursement of public funds, there's far less reason to think that they intended a private remedy. In addition, FERPA speaks in terms of an institutional policy or practice, not individual instances of disclosure. Again, the contrast with a rights-creating provision like Title IX is stark. Title IX says no student shall be subject to discrimination. But FERPA doesn't look at what happens to individual students. It looks at institutional behavior, institutional policy or practice. The the statute does talk about uh, rights of students and rights rights of parents. It's, of course, as you say, preceded by the uh, mandate that there should be no policy. But in in this regard, it seems to me um, to be at least more specific than with reference to to rights than some of the other funding statutes we've looked at? Well, of course, the word rights does not appear in the disclosure provision, subsection B. And in Pennhurst, where the Court was dealing with the developmentally disabled Bill of Rights, the Court explained that just because the statute uses the word rights doesn't mean that it creates a 1983 right. Yes, I recognize in the one section that we're talking about here, uh, you have a stronger argument than the other. But if we uh, assume for the moment, uh, would have a 1983 cause of action under the whole Act without going down provision by provision, then I, I do think you have to recognize that the Act does talk about rights of students, rights of parents to look at files, etc. Well, first of all, the Court in Blessing said that you don't look at the whole Act. You have to look at the particular provision that is relied upon to create the 1983 right. Second of all, well, second of all, we're, we're six years before Maine versus Thibodeau when Congress passed this. So it's not as if they're using rights as some term of art under the established jurisprudence. 
And finally, I think Congress can use the term to refer to the opportunity of parents and students to participate in the administrative remedy, to the criteria that the Secretary of Education is to use in deciding whether to terminate funds, without thereby necessarily triggering coverage under Section 1983. Well, I, I think it's that latter rationale that might be stronger for your case. I'd be somewhat reluctant to parse through this statute and say there's no right under B, there is a right under E, etc. Well, whatever rights, whether you're talking putting aside the question whether it's a 1983 right or a right to participate in the process that's established uh, under the statute, it is part of the policy or practice that the Secretary of Education is to look to in deciding whether to disperse funds. The obligation is to the Secretary, not to the institution. And that is made clear when you look at what Congress said about enforcement. Uh, Congress said the Secretary shall enforce FERPA and the Secretary shall deal with violations. Now, that deal with violations language should strike the Court as unusual. And, in fact, nowhere else in the United States Code does Congress tell an agency to deal with violations. It, It has almost a colloquial tone to it. Mr. Secretary, FERPA is your problem. You deal with the violations. There's no suggestion that they would be dealt with by private actions brought uh, in court. And, in fact, that conclusion is reinforced when you look at subsection G, which tells the Secretary, you set up an office to deal. Whereabouts is this, Mr. Roberts? 12A of our statutory appendix, Your Honor. Thank you. Um, It says to the Secretary, you set up an office to investigate, process, review, and adjudicate complaints about violations under FERPA. I think this is something that you, you, you say violations of this section. You, you tell us that there's no violation of this section unless there's a policy. There's right. no violation unless there's a policy. So he doesn't have to investigate any individual complaint un- unless the person comes in and says, not only do they do it to me, but this is their policy, right? It's as evidence that there might be a problem with the school's policy. And this is what makes it different, for example, from the Wright case. In Wright, the Court said, look, all you can do is terminate funding. There's no process to bring complaints to the attention of the Secretary. That's not enough. Here, Congress said to the Secretary, you set up a complaint procedure. And if someone's got a problem with the release of their records, you investigate it, you process the complaint, you review it, and you adjudicate it. And what has happened is that complaints have come in, and uh, the Family Policy Compliance Office has gotten responses from the university, and voluntary compliance has ensured that the policy and practice of the institution complies with the Secretary's view. I guess that that's all that the plaintiff could, could accomplish in court anyway. The, plaintiff, the plaintiffs here don't contend that they would be entitled to recovery if there is no policy or practice. That's correct. That's correct. So the Secretary's enforcement uh, authority is coextensive with what the Court would be able to do. In terms of the scope of liability. You'd need an allegation of a policy or practice. Exactly. But it is the fact that Congress focused on the policy or practice that helps establish that they were not concerned with individual instances of disclosure. It is odd to speak of a distinctly individual right being protected when whether it's protected or not depends upon whether the school does the same thing to others. That looks more like a systemic concern, not an individual concern. And well, Mr. Roberts, why are they mutually exclusive? I mean, the, the Secretary has this authority, and I think your argument would be more impressive if this were a large operation. On the one hand, you say that 
the courts, the, the, the institutions will be uh, harassed by all these lawsuits across the country, and yet this, this one agency that you are saying will take care of it, the centralized administration, we're told that as of 2000, it had all of seven staff members in that entire office, uh, hardly a number that is likely to be able to handle this flood of complaints? It's, it's very important to keep in mind the distinction beha- between how matters are handled before the uh, Family Policy Compliance Office and in court. FERPA places a premium on voluntary compliance, on informal and inexpensive adjudication. Uh, a 1983 damages action in federal court doesn't. The statute says the secretary shall deal with violations, not the court. The secretary says, and, and the statute goes on to say, and we're going to tell you how to deal with individual complainants. They don't go to court either. They go to the office that's set up by the secretary, and there they will find an informal, inexpensive procedure in which people can quickly find out what the school's answer is, and in a case in which it suggests that there's a policy or practice problem, secure voluntary compliance. Do we know, do we know uh, from the, maybe the attorney, uh, Solicitor General can tell us that these seven people are overworked? Uh, in fact, in practice, most of what they do uh, is field questions uh, from the schools. How do we handle this situation? What do we do about How do you this? get a stop order? I mean, that one of the points that was made is that if records are about to be divulged, say, to a newspaper, and the student or the parent wants an immediate stop order, you can go into court and get a TRO. There's nothing comparable in the secretary's arsenal that has that kind of muscle behind it, is there? Well, there certainly is. The first thing, if you're a student subjected to that, what you would do is call the Family Policy Compliance Office. And the Secretary, keep in mind, has the cudgel of terminating funding behind the most informal telephone call or correspondence. Schools respond to what the Secretary of Education tells them to do with respect to FERPA because they appreciate the sanctions that can be brought. That's the way the system has worked effectively since FERPA was enacted. This office can't really give relief to any individual, however, right, except uh, tell, the, tell the school not to release, wrongfully release records in the future, right? The focus of the office is in vindicating what the statute provides. The statute is directed to institutional behavior. The office reviews complaints in order to secure compliance with the proper policy or practice. Uh, so it is, it all is, you have to do is eliminate the policy, and um, everything that's happened in the past is water over the dam and because go, st- go and sin no more is what the secretary says, right? Because the statute is directed to prospective compliance, not retrospective compensation for injuries. That is a different focus than Section 1983. What do you do about the, the language uh, where it says no funds shall be made available to a school that effectively prevents, etc., uh, the, the students — the, it says of the right to inspect. See, it says of the right to inspect, right in the first sentence. And then later on it says in B, no, uh, the, or later on it says that uh, you, you have to tell the parents in E of the rights accorded them by this. I mean, that's the same question but I want to get a, a, that others have asked, but I want to have very clear in my mind the specific answer. Because it says, we won't give you any money if you interfere with the right 
Now, that sounds as if there's a right. And then they underline it by saying, and you have to tell them about the right. And what's your, your direct response to that is what? The direct response is that you've left out words in the quote, which is that no funds shall be made available to an institution that has a policy or practice. And the question is, is Congress focusing on protecting individual rights in, as the Court said in Blessing, an individual way, or are they addressing a systemic concern? The policy or the, the focus on the Secretary this statute is directed to the Secretary. Don't make funds available. And it says, look at the policy or practice. It's not written the way Title IX is, which would suggest the conferring of an individual right. Secondly, you're quoting from subsection A. Subsection mm-hmm. B does That's not right. talk about rights. And finally, I'll, uh, the, well, but the answer Mr. Roberts, I Let me let me just be sure I understand you. I have the same problem Justice Breyer does, because in 1232G, one, one B on page 2A, no funds and so forth shall be made available if the agency has a policy of denying or effectively prevents the parents of students the right to inspect. Now, is the right to inspect a federal right? I think not, uh, because — What is it, its source? The, the right to inspect is not an independent and freestanding right. It is a description of the sort of policy or practice that should prompt the Secretary of Education to withhold funds. In addition, this is not the provision that's at issue in this case. Subsection well, I understand, B. But your, your initial submission is that this is not a rights-creating statute. It just but, but I don't know where the right comes from that they refer to in that section and also in, in I, I guess, 12A, informing parents or students of rights under this section. Under this section. I think uh, Congress can use the term rights to refer to the opportunities that are provided to the parents and students and to the criteria that the Secretary of Education will look to in deciding funding uh, without thereby triggering coverage under Section 1983, just like in Pennhurst. Congress used the word rights repeatedly. But do you think that the stu- they, they would have had the rights described herein even if this statute had not been passed? No. Uh, the, the, there would not have been. Uh, the, the, no rights are conferred under this, this statute. Uh, what is conferred is discretion on the Secretary of Education to withhold funds depending upon a policy or practice. In describing the policy or practice that should trigger action by the Secretary of Education, the statute refers to opportunities that must be provided to parents and students by that institution. But in doing so, I don't think Congress is necessarily triggering uh, the right to a damages action. You use the word opportunity, the statute, wherever the statute used the word right. Well, the statute doesn't use the words right under subsection B. Uh, the statute in Pennhurst was called the Bill of Rights, and this Court concluded that that did not confer rights. The question is whether Congress acted in a way that indicated an intent to confer an individually enforceable Mr. Right. Roberts, you said that uh, 1232GB is not the st- section at issue here. No. What, what section is, is the one at issue? 1232GB is the section at issue. Uh, Justice Stevens and Justice Breyer were quoting from 1232GA. A refers to rights. B does not. Well, like oh, but B does say the, the parents of students the right to inspect and review. That's A, uh, Your Honor. Uh, that's 1232GA1A. B is on 6A, I gather. Is oh, what B, is on B is on 6A, and it does not refer to rights. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Ms. Millen, we'll hear from you.
Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, if I could begin by responding to Justice Kennedy's question about whether the Family Policy Compliance Office is overworked. I will tell you that they do work very hard, but they do — they handle, for a small staff, they handle an amazing amount of work and have been doing so for 28 years under this statute. They handle over 900 pieces of correspondence a year, up to close to 100 of things that are formally categorized as complaints that they go through the investigative That's three letters pages. a day, I guess. Hmm? That's three letters a day. Yes, but they also I'm, — I'm not done with my list, if you'll forgive me. They have, they have about 300 phone calls a month and well over 1,000 emails a year. That's Ten probably. phone calls a day. <laughs> That's right. And well, <laughs> and well over — well over 1,000 emails. And I think one of the reasons that there isn't — I mean, if you look at the uh, — the legal landscape out there, too, there hasn't been an enormous volume of 1983 actions, and that is because the Secretary has been very successful, I think, in communicating um, and enforcing this in an informal manner with the universities. The universities wish to comply with this, and a lot of it is we've had 28 years now to explicate what this statute means and to clarify what it means. Now, I fear that may change if this Court were to recognize a 1983 action. What is your opinion about the idea that this could be bifurcated, that, that it orders a right to inspect, because that isn't going to be too tough. You let the person look at the records. But there's a policy of disclosure. Does that make sense in terms of the statute to say there's a private right under A but not under B? What's your opinion of that? Um, if I could ask, answer that in two stages. It makes sense to bifurcate analysis as a matter of this Court's 1983 precedent, and specifically that's exactly what the Court did in the Blessing case, which was your most recent case, up here. Uh, as a whole, we don't think it actually makes sense to do so under this statute. The Court need not decide that today because the only provision at issue is subsection B, which does not refer to rights and focuses on policies or practices. But our, our position is that there, there are three mutually reinforcing features here, both in A and B, that show that there is not a right under 1983. And that is, even under A, the very beginning of the sentence and the operative com- command is that no funds shall be distributed or shall be distributed by the Secretary of Education. And that is distinctive, unique language that this Court recognized, uh, suggested in canon and held just last term in Sandoval is not the type of language Congress would use to create individual rights. And in, fa- in particular, in 1974, two years after Title IX was enacted, Congress chose different, distinctly different language that is you know, very uncommon in the U.S. Code. If you um, go through the first three factors listed in blessing, Congress intended that it benefit the plaintiff and it not be beyond judicial competence. Um, and then there must be an unambiguously uh, binding obligation on the state. Um, it would seem to me that those are met here and that you then have to go to the next part of the test, which is that that, that creates a, a presumption that there is a right. Well, as we said in our brief, we think that the, the problem here is not that it's vague or amorphous and not that it's, there's not binding obligations, which is the second two prongs of the blessing test. But the first prong of the blessing test, while phrased in terms of benefiting individuals, this Court made clear in blessing, is not just a general inquiry, is, is this of, of some good to people, because all legislation is of some good to somebody. It is whether it creates individual entitlements, and that's where we think this statute fails. A statute well, with that, reference to the 
other part, the non-B parts of the statute, it, mm-hmm. it does seem to me that it talks about the student and the parent mm-hmm. in very specific terms and in use the, use of the term right. Well, again, this, this Court made clear in Pennhurst that you can't just look at the word right in isolation. You have to put it in context. And there's some important context I would like to stress. Again, even up for subsection A, um, it, the, the right begins with, it, it's, begins with the no funds command. The focus is on a policy system-wide basis. And even when it talks about rights, it's not an individual right. It is the, um, the, the education records of the children. Parent, I'm sorry, I'm reading from, this is my appendix. I hate to confuse the court uh, to my brief at 1A, where subsection A is. And the, it has to be a policy of denying or effectively preventing the parents of students, plural, access to these records. So we think that makes clear that you have the same programmatic system-wide rule here. And in fact, the Secretary's position is that if you had one instance of a failure to allow someone access to records or a non-policy or non-program-wide failure to allow access to records, that would not violate FERPA. So the command is still — it's in the — it's written differently. I mean, the statute was — um, you know, put on, put on, uh, was enacted on the floor of Congress. It didn't have long hearings where people sort of labored and struggled over precise language. But it May contained- I ask you this, really the same question I asked Mr. Roberts, I suppose, but the first sentence of 1232GA1A refers to a policy of denying access, denying the right to inspect and review education record. In your view, is that right a federally created right or is that a right created by some other source, and if so, what is the source of the right? I am sorry, I'm having there were too it's many the, numbers in that. It's, it's actually the, G1. It's the first sentence of uh-huh. 1232G on page 2A of, of the blue brief. It was the first, very first sentence in the in the statute ends by saying the right to inspect and review the education records of their children. Mm-hmm. And my question is whether you think that is a federally created right, and if not, what is the source of that right? I think it's, it's not — I have two answers. First of all, whatever it is, it's a collective program-wide aggregated right because it squeaks in the plural. But secondly, it's not — I think it is used, as Mr. Roberts said here, in a shorthand way. And the legislative history says that one of the things they were trying to force here was what Congress considered to be pre-existing be moral or legal Let me be sure you have my question in mm-hmm. mind. Do you think the right to which the statute refers is a federally created right mm-hmm. or a right with a different source? I think what the, st- the statute is creating there is a federal overlay to protect, pre, as, as, as was said in the legislative history on page 17 of our brief, pre-existing legal or moral rights. So that if a school came back and said, in our state there's no such right, mm-hmm. then the statute would not apply. And Congress felt that when he said pre-existing moral or legal rights, that there was a sense of Congress that this is a type of, not, not in a right sense that we use in, in, for purposes of 1983 actions, but con- the legislative history was that Congress had a sense here that this was something all individuals should have. Um, but but, it, but, but this, you, it is something they should have by reason of this statute and therefore it's federally created or by reason of some pre-existing rule of law in some, uh, had some other source? Well, Congress's language was pre-existing moral or legal rights. And so I'm not sure what one considers it's, the source it's of it. It's another source. It seems to me that the state or the institution could say in this locality there is no such right. And that would make the statute totally inapplicable. No, no, it wouldn't, because what you still have is once you take these funds, you have a federal overlay. Uh, once you decide to take these funds, your, your prior law doesn't matter. It's what a you federal have overlay on a non-existent right, if I understand you correctly. Well, then there, uh, there's a fed, there is, there's no doubt that there's a federal level of protection here for privacy. And it, what, it, it's at a aggregated 
collective system-wide level. It's not at the individual But you level used of the word overlay. Uh, Mr. Roberts used the word obligation. You stay away from the, the term right in the statute. If, if we uh, follow Justice Stevens' line of question and concluded uh, that there is a, a federal right, would you necessarily uh, — would your position — would that be fatal to your position? Uh, well, or would you say it's a right that can be enforced through a comprehensive administrative scheme? That, that's right. We, in two ways, it wouldn't. It's not an issue in this case. And second, our, our second argument is that the nature of the — whatever the nature of the right is that's created here, Congress has, has created the very type of scheme that it thinks is appropriate to enforce these collective, aggregate, system-wide rights that it created here. Well, are you, I, in effect, saying that, the, as Mr. Roberts did, I think when he used the word opportunity — that this is kind of the, that the scheme of this section is sort of an if-then sort of scheme. If you deny them the opportunity, then and you do so on a systemic basis, then the secretary will take or should take certain action. Is that is that you were saying essentially the same thing that that, that he did? Yes. Yeah, our, so when um, when you say there's a federal right, you you really mean there's 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 an opportunity. Uh, if the opportunity is denied, uh, then certain administrative action can be taken. That, that's right. There's a, there's a federal obligation, uh, to use, to use the, uh, Mr. Roberts' words, a federal obligation, once you take these funds, to not have system-wide practices or policies that either deny access or, in this case, uh, disclose without consent or an authorized uh, basis for disclosure. And I think it's very, again, very unique language. You have — you don't even have to look at the, the uh, two separately, but when you combine the no-funds language — and the focus on system-wide policies or practices that this Court made clear in blessing, that type of aggregate language doesn't create individual rights. rights excuse me. And then you marry to that the fact that con- Congress has enacted an administrative scheme that is directly responsive to that type of system-wide overlay. Should not Thank you, Ms. Miller. Rights. Thank you. Ms. Brinkman, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In FERPA, Congress gave parents the right to prevent the release of certain education records. That's evident from Congress's choice of words and the structure and history of the statute. There are at least five indications of that intent, including references to rights under that provision, which I'll get to in a moment. It involves reading two sections together. First, in section — this is on page 9A of the red brief at the very top. In 1232GB2A — at the top of page 9A, Congress prohibited a recipient from having a policy of releasing education records, quote, unless there is written consent from the student's parents. Congress did not say unless there is a policy of obtaining written consent. Congress thereby — Now, you're reading from 9A, Ms. Brinkman. Whereabouts on page 9? At the very top, Your Honor, paragraph 2 begins that no funds shall be given to an agency and explains um, that has a policy of — see it either. I'm looking at page — He said red brief. 9A of the red, red brief. It's on page 8A of the blue brief. I'm sorry. It's on page 8A of the blue brief, if you prefer that. The problem is there are other provisions in here I need to refer to. Um, at the very top of the page, it explains that no funds shall go to a um, school that has a policy of releasing information, and at the end of that first paragraph, quote, unless, and then we go to subparagraph A, there is written consent from the student's parents. Congress did not say unless the school has a policy of obtaining consent. Yes, it does. It, it says no money will go to an educational 
agency or institution which has a policy or practice. Unless. Unless. Yes. Now, if you don't have a policy or practice, the whole provision doesn't apply. If you don't have a policy or practice of releasing information other than under the preceding section B1, you're correct, Your Honor. The whole thing wouldn't apply. And B2A is — B1 says you can't — a school can't have a policy of releasing without consent other than to certain categories. It's a question of whether you read the word policy. What policy? I think Justice Scalia is reading it as what policy? It's a A policy — A policy of releasing records without written consent. That's not what not — that's not what B2A says. That language is not — that is — the without consent is in B1. It's not in B2. It says — has a policy or practice of releasing or providing access to any personally identifiable information other than director information or is permitted under paragraph 1. That's what paragraph 1 does. It permits a laundry list of releases where Congress said we're not going to require parental consent. School educators need this information. B1, no problem. You get all of this information without parental consent. Other than in those situations, if you have a policy or practice, then the school decides, okay, we're going to — I'm really not following you. What do you think the unless goes to? I take it that the unless goes to no funds shall be av- shall be made available. Yes. Unless. Yes. Okay. So but, — But that whole provision, no funds shall be made available, only applies to an educational agency or institution which has a policy or practice of releasing. Absolutely. If it doesn't have a policy or practice of releasing, it's entirely exempt from that provision. That's correct, Your Honor, because they did not — Congress did not intend to go after inadvertent releases. For example, the school makes a decision if they are going to have a policy of releasing information to a scholarship program or to the press. And if they have a policy of release, they have to abide by this very specific requirement in B2A. Right. They may choose not to. It's parallel to the directory information provision in the statute. Congress also said — you, school, can make a choice. If you want to release things like names, classes, awards received under the directory information provision, you can make that decision. You have to give a notice at the beginning of the year, and you have to give parents enough time to respond to see whether or not they want to opt out of that. Same thing under B2A. If you, as a university, decide that you want to have a policy or practice of releasing things beyond what is already authorized under B1, which includes other teachers, emergency situations, federal officials, um, all kinds of situations, then you have to abide by B2A, and you cannot have that policy or practice unless there is written consent from the student's parents. It, it appears to be a scheme, at least as I read it, just directed at when federal funds are going to be given to a school. And you determine that by whether the school has a particular policy or practice. And and the remedy is withholding funds. I don't see how you extrapolate from the statute the intent to create a private cause of action for damages. Your Honor, in addition to the language, unless there is, our, our position is that because there is that requirement, unless there is written consent from the parents, Congress intended to directly benefit the parents and to say to the parents in a particular situation, you can say, no, I don't want this information released. Parents may have different decisions based on whether or not they think it will benefit but, uh, their child. They can't do that because, uh, I mean, if the information is released and the parent says, I object, the institution can say, oh, I'm sorry, that was just 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 a mistake. We we don't have that policy. Uh, you know, we released it. Too bad. 
We don't have the policy. So there is no absolute right on the part of the parent to prevent it. There is, Your Honor, because the, um, if they do have a policy and process, it's akin to the standard that the Court adopted in Gepser. And here Congress did that. They said, we are not going to charge every institution with an inadvertent release. But to the extent, as under Manel, if there is requisite knowledge by the school that they have a policy or practice, they're intending to be releasing information, they are charged with getting the consent from the parents. And again, yeah, I have but to — But the, the consequence — if, if they don't get consent from the parents, the express consequence is no funds shall be made available. Which is the commonality in all of the spending clause cases that have come before the Court, Your Spickman, Honor. But not the emphasis. I mean, as was pointed out by Mr. Roberts, Title Nine, Title Six say no person shall be. And this starts out with no funds. Do you have any statute, any spending statute, that uses the no funds shall instead of no person shall be denied, where this Court has either implied a private right of action or has found a right which 1983 can then be used to enforce? Well, Your Honor, there's never been a formula. None of the statutes where the Court has found a right has included that language, right, wilder, blessing. None of them have the language the petitioner and the Solicitor General are now urging. In fact, in footnote 12 of the Souter opinion, the Court contrasted the language where they were not finding a right to a statute that, quote, said, no federal payment may be made under this part. And they said, now, there's a specific requirement. So there's no formula. None of the courts have had this language that they're now urging. The Souter opinion refers to this type of language as being more specific, and it doesn't, as a practical matter, make any difference. What these spending clause statutes do is say, if you receive federal spends, you have to abide by these conditions. I'm not sure that that I stated my question um, precisely. There are Title VI, Title IX, Statutes that use the formula, no person shall. And under those statutes, a right of action has been implied. And what I'm asking is, is there any statute with the language, no funds shall, where a right of action has been implied? No statute with that language has ever come before the Court, Your Honor. And all I'm saying is there are many other cases in which statutes have been found to accord rights under Section 1983 that don't have that no student shall language. You, you say you agree there is no example of a case we've decided where the term is no funds shall? That statute has not come before the Court. I have to say in the Title IX and Title VI context, it was the broader inquiry of whether or not there was implied cause of action. But in Your Honor's opinion, in Souter and footnote um, 12, it does refer to this type of statute and suggests that that is a direct requirement. Where, if where, I may, where, where, where the statutes, the, the footnote you're quoting, speaks in terms of or addresses the no funds shall? The precise language in that um, statute, which is quoted in that footnote, says that no federal funds payments shall be made, Your Honor. It's on page 361 of the opinion, and it's citing 42 U.S.C. 672E. It says, quote, for example, no federal payment may be made under this part, and then it goes on, and it says, um, that that is an example of more precise requirements as contrasted to statute and suitor. If I may, there are four other provisions I'd like to speak to in, in addition to the lang- language, unless there is. In addition, again on page 9A under B2A, 
It's not just unless there is written consent. That consent has to have included a provision of a copy of what is intended to be released by the school to the parents. Their parents have to be told why the information is being released, and their parents have been told to whom it is being released. That is exactly what the Court referenced in Blessing about Congress addressing the particular needs of the individuals who they're according the rights to. They knew that parents were going to be able to need to know why the information was provided, exactly what it is, and to whom. Parents may think it's fine to release financial information, personal information about their household for a scholarship or an honorary award purpose, but not, for example, to a newspaper story about low-income families in the school district. Third, the history of the stat. Before I go to the history, actually, I want to um, explain another provision of the statute, which I think the um, two more. You have two more coming. Well, well, you said uh, you had four. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, actually, I'm going to jump in though because this ref- um, responds to questions of the court about the use of the word right. If you could turn to page 12A in the red brief, subsection D, 1232GD, is entitled "Students Rather Than Parents Permission or Consent." That clearly references the permission or consent under B2A. That is where this permission or consent is referenced in FERPA. And it explains there the purpose of it to explain that when a student becomes 18, as the student here was or attending a um, school of higher education, the permission or consent required and the rights accorded to the parents of the student shall be required in accordance with the students. B2A gives the student, requires permission or consent and then gives the right to deny permission or consent. That is a direct reference to the right under B2A. Moreover, as um, members of the So we have right, the, the word right used in B as well as in A, or at least with reference to B as well as with reference. Much more precisely, Your Honor, here, because they are specifically talking not just about B generically, but about the permission or consent. Well, why does right refer to B? I mean, rights could refer to A. Because the... Um, whole provision of D refers to permission or consent, Your Honor. There is no permission or No, it says permission and consent of and the yes. rights. Yes, so but would that be uh, the first is this and the other is that? But if you look at the structure of the provision, they are referring to the actual permission or consent because that's when you would need to know, do I go to the, when I, for a college student, do I go to the, the right to inspect after he's 18 is a right that goes to the student, not to the parent. But, Your Honor, this is specifically addressing the permission or consent provision. You can tell by the heading of subsection D. Moreover, under E, as Your Honor pointed out before, um, the school is obligated to inform parents or students of their rights under the regulations promulgated by the Secretary of Education. One of the rights they are required to inform parents and students about is the consent. Where does it say that? Where does it say that? It would be in the regulations, Your Honor. In the regulation. Okay, fine. Even if if we say that you met the three blessing standards, Justice O'Connor said in that opinion, there's something more, and that the more is what seems to be the strongest emphasis of the case that Mr. Roberts and Ms. Millett made, and that is that Congress created an enforcement scheme that they meant to be it, that would be incompatible with individual enforcement. Actually, that ironically leads me to my third point, in fact. When you look at the history, Congress 
clearly was addressing the interests of parents in controlling the dissemination of information about their children. This is a paradigm example of what they were worried about, information that's gossip, unsubstantiated, never had a chance to respond to, and that could have devastating effect on a student's career. Under petitioner's interpretation — But the issue isn't whether they were worried about that. The issue is whether they, they wanted to, to eliminate that worry by having the secretary police the thing or by having lawsuits uh, to, to vindicate private rights. Yes, Your Honor, and, and I think — I don't see how you, you, you advance the ball at all by saying what they were worried about was precisely this thing. I mean, I think — I think um, uh, Mr. Roberts would stipulate that. Well, it was the point that Justice Ginsburg brought up before, which actually I think responds to your inquiry. Under petitioner's interpretation, if this student had found out that this information was about to release, information he could prove was false, he would have no avenue to prevent the release of that. There is no mechanism in the Department of Education to provide any individual remedy, let alone our TRO. And I think that um, that's even magnified by but the that's, that's it may not be the ideal remedy. It may not be the best remedy. And one of the anomalies here that wouldn't be present in Title IX is working through 1983, where you must have a state action peg. And here it happened that there was a connection with a state, with a state officer. The conversation was between private institution and the state officer. But suppose we have two schools. And one is about to give a record to a newspaper, and the other is about to do the same thing. One is the state university, and one is the private university. Under your scheme, the, the private university would be home free. It wouldn't be subject to 1983 liability, but the public would. And I, I think that would be a strange scheme for Congress to enact. Your Honor, um, actually, it's much more complicated than that. It's just not whether or not suits are available against public or private because, of course, state universities are often deemed arms of the state, so they're not subject to suit at all. The only action that can be brought against a state official is for injunctive relief. Moreover, most private elementary and secondary schools, as is pointed out in um, the amicus brief in support of a respondent, don't receive federal funding. So there are a lot of different ways in which there may be different actions, but that is because of 1983, 11th Amendment. Well, maybe that shows that 1983 really doesn't fit this pattern, because why even why should certain kinds of institutions be stuck and others not doing because, the same thing. Because the relationship of students with a private school is different than a relationship with a public school. A relationship of a student in a public school is defined by state law. It is, and that's what an action under 1983 is. It's under color of state law. But doesn't the student have the same, whether we're going to call it right or opportunity, in, in a private school with respect to records, like a private university? Only if the school receives federal funds. Secondary which, and elementary which an schools. overwhelming number of schools do. Only universities, Your Honor. Actually, the um, amicus brief of the ACLU cites a letter from the Department of Education explaining that the vast majority of private schools, elementary and secondary, do not receive federal funding. But if I may, I think that the important point here is the relationship of a student with a private school is different. There is a contractual relationship there, and there may very well be other remedies against a private school arising out of for example, here in Exhibit 1 at the trial, the handbook, Gonzaga promised to abide by FERPA and said, we will not release information without your consent. There could be a contractual action there. You can't have those kinds of actions against school, public schools. 
That's why Congress created Section 983 to address Brinkman, the wrong can I, can I uh, come back to your, your assertion that, that, there, that there is no right to an injunction? You can't get an injunction under, under this Act. But you can't, you can't get an injunction even if we accept uh, your, your theory of the Act. You cannot get an injunction unless you show not only that they're about to release this information, but also that this is their practice or policy. Absolutely, Isn't Your Honor. Right? I mean, absolutely. So what good does and that do? You, you because have to in go this in, case, you needed the testimony which, which of one witness, that, which suggests that you're not vindicating a private right of, of yours. That that, that 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 somehow what Congress is concerned with is the existence of a policy or practice that it doesn't like. With all even due though, respect, even though you're being harmed by this release, under your theory, you can't get an injunction against it. I respectfully disagree. Policy or you absolutely could get an injunction, Your Honor. Uh, how so? Because you needed the testimony of one witness in this case who said, we do this all of the time. We disclose information to the state agency before. You need that witness. And if you don't have such a witness, you cannot get an injunction. Isn't that right? That's right. That's a matter of proof. And, Your Honor, what I just have to emphasize, that what the provision here goes to with the policy and practice in B2A is Manel, Gepser. It is Congress saying we're not going to charge every university with this requirement. If they have a policy or practice, if this decision is made at a high enough level that they would have requisite knowledge, that's the only place in which this Section 1983 liability would um, be triggered. Is that, can I ask you one question on the practicality? If, assuming all the language is ambiguous, etc. And I'd like you to remove this image from my mind. The image that I have in my mind was an earlier case argued here in this court. And as a result of the lawyer's argument in that case, I focused on the language, educational records. And I realized it's a close question, perhaps, as to whether those words do include things like a gold star the third grade teacher might give out in class or the statement, you're going to get a bad mark on your report card. I suddenly realized it's highly ambiguous. And the lawyer said that he had been cross-examining the school officials on this and related questions in the courtroom for several hours, I thought. I mean, at least for a time. And suddenly it occurred to me, how are they teaching or running the school district? And the image that came up in my courtroom was of private actions all over the place, trying to bring into court school officials to interpret language which really doesn't explain itself. Therefore, a need for centralized administration, which of course would be harmful to some parents, but counterbalanced by the need for effective school administration. And, and those were the things in my mind, and that's the image it called up. And I want you to reply to that, because I think that's at the heart of this, at least the practical part. I think I have at least five answers. I, I haven't counted them all. First of all, I think it's important to um, realize that that's one of the reasons you have the particularized examination blessing. We are not saying there's a right under every one of these provisions, but if you look at B2A, unless there is these specific requirements, the history of it, and also if you compare it to the other release provisions that do not have this kind of right, they say you have to notify the parent or you have to make the person who's getting it promise to destroy it when they're done with it. They don't have this right. So if you look at this particular right, then you step back and you realize what the Department of Education has been saying. Schools comply with this statute. It is clear and simple. You give them a copy. You ask the parents, tell the parents why and to whom it's going. In the 28 years since this um, statute has been 
um, enacted, there has been no flood of litigation, despite the fact that the Second Circuit, I think 15 years ago, held that there was a Section 1983 cause of action. The Fifth Circuit, more than 10 years ago, um, there is no Federal Court of Appeals that has taken petitioner's position. I think in the past five or six years, there have been at least two more circuits. But, if you're, if, if the force, if we accept the force of your argument, then I think we'd, we'd have to say, well, Congress really didn't need to bother with the centralized administration provision. Uh, and yet Congress did put it in, and it seems to me the most likely reason that it put it in is the reason that Justice Breyer just gave. I so you, you may, may, may have made a good argument for getting rid of it, but as long as it's there, it seems to have the same lesson that his, his question suggests. I think that the, um, the fifth co-office serves an um, admirable and meritorious uh, role. It, it answers countless numbers of phone calls and inquiries about this. But its own interpretation of its role, I think, is really illustrated by footnote 6 in our brief, which is on page um, 35. In 1987, um, when FIPCO changed regulations, it explained that it wasn't going to require schools even to afford them access to education records information because they don't go out and investigate. What more accurately reflects their investigation is allowing schools to submit reports. And this is, quote, since its exception, FIPCO has not conducted any on-site visits to resolve complaints. Rather, it has resolved complaints through correspondence and telephone calls with the affected parties. And that works in the vast majority of cases. In the limited number of cases that have been brought under FERPA in the federal courts and federal and state courts, since its um, uh, um, enactment, this is the only reported case that anyone has located of punitive damages, and the only other case that any damages was a dollar of nominal damages. But that may be a very good argument for saying that what Congress had in mind, uh, in effect, in, in confining the enforcement the way it seems to have done uh, by this exclusive authority provision, works in the general run of cases, and therefore there is not a good reason to say that Congress probably would have wanted this private right of action with the punitive damages. I think it works generally. And then you look at the blessing inquiry to see if Congress intended to create a right. They intended to create a right from all of those reasons I've said. Once you get there, it's clear, it's mandatory. But we're, we're at the we're, – we're beyond stage one, two, three, and we're saying, yes. okay, are there particular reasons to think that they, that they did not? Then it's presumptively – available, a Section 1983 action. It's not an implied cause of action. Congress created 1983 and said, if you have a federal right, you can enforce it in court. It is against that presumption that petitioner has to carry the heavy burden that this court has found met only twice. In the well, C. Clemmer's case, Robinson. Why isn't the, the theory of centralized administration uh, spe spelled out in the statute with the Secretary's office doing this thing, why doesn't that overcome the presumption? Because the presumption has to be overcome by an enforcement scheme, an administrative scheme that supplants the Section 1983 that has some address for a private Well, it certainly remedy. doesn't have to be a duplicate of Section 1983, absolutely. or there'd be no point to saying it supplants? Absolutely, Your Honor. But here there is absolutely no availability for any remedy for an individual injury. And see, Clamers well, no, no, wait, wait a minute. Uh, 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 as I understand it, People who are aggrieved by some practice in the schools can get a hold of the secretary's office and by a phone call, and perhaps by the secretary's action in saying either you fly right or we're cut off funds, they, they do have a remedy. 
Not under B-2A if they have released records. There's no provision for any kind of um, damages compensation for an individual. And the Court has looked at that role of the administrative scheme in its line of cases, deciding whether or not it was sufficient to supplant this congressionally created right under Section 1983. In the two cases — Brinkman, can you give us one other example of a right — that depends upon whether the person allegedly violating the right has done it before. Yes, sir. Or has a policy or practice of doing it. For example, you know, your right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. Suppose you're going to tell us about the Monell case. I was going to cite the Monell case. I think that's exactly what the Monell case is. That depends on whom you can sue. That depends upon whom you can assert the right against but against the individual, you can assert that right, whether there's a policy or practice or not. That's simply the question of whether you can reach the municipality. But I cannot think of a single other right in the world which only exists as a right when somebody is a two-time loser or has a policy uh, or practice. Your Honor, a policy or practice may not have injured anyone in the past. They may have a written policy saying, we're going to release these things to me. But it's a very strange right. I, I don't know of, of — This is exactly I have another rights question, too, that I, you're relying on the use of the right, of the term right, in the statute. What do you do uh, — what do you what, — what do you conceive to be — the, it's, on the, it's on page 4A of the blue brief. It refers to the privacy rights of students. It says that uh, no fund shall may be available, blah, 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 unless uh, in accordance with regulation of the, se- uh, 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 of the secretary, uh, the student or parent has a right to challenge the content of each student's education right, in order to ensure that the records are not inaccurate, misleading, or otherwise in violation of the privacy rights of students. Is that also the creation of a federal privacy right? I don't believe so, Your Honor. I have Does it to- refer to existing state privacy rights or just to sort of a moral a moral notion of what things uh, should be kept private. Well, I have to emphasize our statutory argument about rights is not based solely on the 1232GD reference to rights. It's based on the unless there is consent from the parents and on this particularized consent required, giving parents a copy, telling them to whom and why. That is what demonstrates under the blessing standard it was intended to benefit parents and to address their specific needs to protect their children from information they have never been informed about, as in this case, that destroyed this person's career. That's exactly what Congress was aiming at. And without, in petitioner's position, there is absolutely nothing that anyone can do to protect that right. The Department of Education cannot give individual relief, and this anybody will be barred from going in. To court. Fortunately, this doesn't happen. It's simple. Schools comply with it. This is an exceptionally well, unusual Brickman, and egregious the, case. There haven't been other cases where substantial monetary damages and punitive damages have been available. And maybe that's the concern. I mean, it's this is a person who did have a right. There was a contract right and there was the defamation. But by Bringing 1983 into the picture, the damages are increased for the same conduct, and you can pick up 1988 counsel fees. It's not the same conduct, Your Honor, if I may. Um, 
first of all, defamation would not necessarily co- cover cases that involved truthful information. But in this particular case, if I could just make clear what I think, first of all, this involves compensatory damage. It's just not punitives. And, of course, this Court's ruling will affect injunctive actions also. But in this case, because this information was released at the very outset of this investigation, it affected the school's decision about whether or not to issue an affidavit to my client. There was disagreement, even as it stood, without any information from my client to say this was false. There was disagreement amongst the school officials about whether or not to issue this. And Plaintiff's Exhibit 28 has a chronology. The people who, at the school who were in favor of releasing, of not giving the affidavit, got state officials to contact the dean. Thank and you, Ms. Brinkman. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, Mr. Robert, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. Two statutes enacted within two years of each other. Title IX, no person shall be subject to discrimination. FERPA, no funds shall be made available to an institution that has a policy or practice described in the statute, and the Secretary shall deal with violations, and the Secretary shall do that at one place because we're worried about multiple interpretations causing confusion. Now, that is two — those are two very different ways of approaching a problem. Under this Court's precedence, the former, the Title IX model, confers privately enforceable rights. The latter does not. Why would Congress proceed differently in dealing with educational institutions in those two different contexts? Because of the appreciation that the regulation of student records from kindergarten through graduate school directly implicated pedagogical concerns. It would have been a radical notion, even in 1974, for Congress to confer individual rights on every student from kindergarten to graduate school in a way that would directly uh, implicate the day-to-day running of schools across the country. And there's no evidence to suggest that that's what Congress had in mind. The evidence is the opposite. It proceeded gingerly. It said this is directed to the Secretary. It's directed to policies and practice. Who's going to deal with violations? Mr. Secretary, deal with violations. And do do it in one place. Four months after FERPA was enacted, in response to what was called by the sponsors the perplexity and frustration, it had called. Four months, they added the second sentence to subsection G on page 12A of the blue brief. And that said, don't do any of this, Mr. Secretary, in any of the regional offices. The reason? We're afraid of multiple interpretations. Well, Multiple interpretations caused by regional offices is a slight problem. They all are, after all, answerable to the Secretary. Individual private plaintiffs suing in state and federal court around the country, any one of the 62 million students uh, uh, covered by the federal funds requirement, that would give rise to multiple interpretations. And it is implausible to suppose. They're answerable to us, presumably. We can take care of all of that. Right. Well, it is implausible to suppose that the same Congress that was so worried about multiple interpretations of the law from regional offices of one department would have been perfectly content and, in fact, intended to confer the right for every one of 62 million students to go into court in a 1983 action. Thank you, Mr. Roberts. Thank you, Roberts. The case is submitted.